Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Hello everybody, it's Dr Nick here again and welcome to Radiotherapy. Um, so today's studio for Radiotherapy is looking a bit lean and mean because we've got both Miss Medic and Prudence Deer off gallivanting somewhere and that leaves the stalwarts to hold the force. Fort, our first stalwart is our resident psychologist and guru on all matters of the mind, body and soul, Rainbow Doc. Lovely to see you again, Rainbow. Good morning, Doc. Nick. Thank you for getting out of your cotton and cosy environment to come in today. Well, I did. I had a bit of a rush. I had a Melbourne traffic experience this morning. On the Sunday morning? Uh, yeah, exactly. That's probably why I had that. I didn't allow enough time thinking it was Sunday morning, but here I am. Well, lovely to have you. And sitting next to Rainbow, looking all bright of eye and bushy of tail, we have our very own medical student, Misdiagnosis. <laughs> Good morning. Back. I think that's a generous description. I think it's more bloodshot of eye and, and drippy of nose this morning, but thank you anyway. Well, perhaps a little lack of vitamin C and zinc in the system, is it? Could be. (laughs) And not forgetting the most important man in the room, the man who makes it all happen behind the scenes, will also be joining the conversation with us today, panel beater. Good morning, everybody. I um, haven't been lean and mean since, I reckon, like the early 2000s. I think that's a bit... If if this were a visual medium, you could see this hunk behind the (laughs) microphone there. You'd also see the blush as as he's introduced as most importantly. (laughs) So in a packed show today, we'll be taking a detailed look at private lives three, the latest National Health and Wellbeing Service survey of the LGBTI community. 
panel beta will delve with me into the medical consultation and later in the show, misdiagnosis will be having a think about doctors and activism and when should health professionals get involved in politics and policy. But before all this, we have a little news. So coming up in just a second, we have our little Yes, it's definitely a Sunday morning here on Radio Therapy. Has someone put something in the water? It's very giggly in here this morning. It's 102.7 for those of you who still can't work out what you're listening to on the radio. It's Radiotherapy with me, Dr Nick. We have Rainbow and Misdiagnosis and Panel Beta. Misdiagnosis, you've got some great news for us this morning. Oh, I've got some fantastic news. This um, article came to my attention during the week and I must say I rejoiced a little bit because the title of the article was Does Dark Chocolate Lower the Risk for Depression? And it's the results of a new British study that was published recently. Um, And the study found that eating dark chocolate is um, actually correlates very highly with reduced symptoms of depression. And when you look at this paper, obviously you think, wonderful, I can go out and eat all the dark chocolate I want. And then you think, well, we should probably actually have a look at what they actually studied, how many people and what kind of things they were controlling for. And we should probably just check, was this from the Cadbury Institute for Medical Research? I actually looked up whether they had any funding from um, any uh, confectionery um, sort of superfoods and they they didn't. It was, um, uh, yeah, an entirely independent study. Um, But what they found essentially was that, um, so it was, they used, uh, they did a study of people and they used a self-report over the last 48 hours of how much chocolate people ate. And what they found was that it wasn't eating chocolate that was um, associated with a reduction in depressive symptoms. It was eating dark chocolate. And it was a 70% reduction. And then when you actually look at the paper itself, what the authors have said is we're not sure whether people with more depressive symptoms crave more sugary foods and therefore don't reach for dark chocolates, whether people who are more health conscious and maybe more on top of their mental health are opting for dark chocolates. So there's a lot that isn't really sort of understood about this study. Misdiagnosis, culturally we think of things, we, we label certain kinds of foods comfort foods. Does distinguishing between dark chocolate and any other variety, does that uh, eliminate the possibility that this is just a placebo? It could be a placebo. The other thing they found in this study is that people that ate the largest quantities of chocolate had a reduction in depressive symptoms as well, which I think was really interesting. The people that ate between 100 to 450 grams of chocolate per day had uh, a reduction, I think it was about 57% less likely to report depressive symptoms. So it it could be a placebo effect. There could be a lot of confounding things. This study controlled for um, height and weight and education and ethnicity, income and smoking and other health conditions. So it was actually a pretty thorough study. But I think the most important thing is what we don't understand about this is um, is it that people with depressive symptoms are not eating dark chocolate rather than the dark chocolate reducing the depressive symptoms themselves. So it's that classic association thing. There was an association between the dark chocolate eating and better mood, but what causes which is still not clear. Absolutely. I still think it's permission to go out and buy those $2 coal special lint 80%. It, which is worse, depression or diabetes? Oh, that's a hard one. But there has been a lot of research in mood, mood disorder and pleasant activity. And it's one of those things where, uh, honestly, how much harm comes from it? Now, dark chocolate is pretty safe stuff, and if it might make you feel a little better, what's the harm? So 
I'm, I'm all for it. I'll, I'll go for the dark chocolate treatment, I think. I'm all for it, too. OK, so our resident psychologist Agreed. gives it a tick. <laughs> um, I just wanted to alert people. Somebody came up in the news. This is an allegation against one of the, um, the search engines that deals with uh, medical practices, particularly general practices. Um, and it's been alleged that this um, search engine has been selling their data to insurance companies um, so that uh, they can monetize the information they get about patients. This is a very, very alarming development. If we remember what happened with Cambridge Analytica selling Facebook data, we've now got the possibility that when you log on to your um, health provider's website and, and go through one of these search engine type providers, uh, that they'd be misusing your information. I, mean, I find that incredible. Yeah, it's really incredible. Um, should we be surprised in this quote-unquote day and age? Yeah, I think that's a fair point, isn't it? It just reminds us to be very cautious about what we're doing with our online data. But the idea that this is happening within the medical field... Yeah, and, and also they've been allegedly doctoring the reviews so that um, unfavourable reviews of medical practices have been deleted or, or amended somewhat. Mm-hmm. It, um, it raises the question, you know, on online where you get stars, you can review, medi- which is, is not an ethical thing to do at all. But, you know, the idea that, I mean, I, I question that kind of reviewing of anything, really, because you just go on and get all your friends to give you five stars and there you go. But that that kind of stuff might be, you know, it's a similar kind it's, of... It's interesting because thinking about this, I, I had a quick look at Google reviews for our particular practice and there weren't terribly many. I think the most recent one was about seven months ago. But there was one from five years ago that gave us one star and the person said, I had to see an outrageously gay doctor and went on this oh, homophobic what? rant online, which I was delighted to see was then backed up by a few other people yeah. saying, how dare you say this, that sort of thing. But there you have... Uh, on our official reviews, a one-star review because someone didn't like seeing a gay doctor. Rainbow or um, Dr Nick, in practice, have you ever utilised something that we might call customer satisfaction surveys, either at the reception or within your um, consulting room? Funny you should say that because it's actually a requirement for general practice accreditation that you do a waiting room survey of a random sample of patients. And we're going through accreditation uh, this forthcoming week, so we have just done it. Yes. What's, what's your gut feeling around that exercise? Well, our receptionists are very good about choosing who gets given that <laughs> random survey. It sounds like me in uh, student evaluation. <laughs> I would say no, have never never done that and the only time I mean that gets tends to be done in in group programs so there's an evaluation done um, including evaluating the you know the facilitators of the group program or um, if you're involved in some kind of research I, I'm involved in some kind of research at the moment obviously there's consent for those mm-hmm. uh, clients for getting involved in that and in that there is a there's a feedback about the the practitioners in other words me but um but we as know a general pan- rule. we know panel beta well enough to know there's a reason he's asking that question yes what <laughs> is the reason panel beta well I, i've got a uh, a rather negative disposition to anything that resembles customer service um, feedback um, mainly mainly because um, I, I guess I look at these things with a um, research method 
point of view and they're so flawed. Um, the difference between being satisfied with your service, we could even use the example you gave, Dr Nick, about the homophobe feedback. You know, is the priority that person's comfort level, especially in a medical setting, or um, is it actually the quality of the practice of the person um, servicing that client? Um, and clearly we'd fall in the quality of the practice. But from a customer satisfaction point of view, that person's not happy and we can't tell them they're happy if they're not. As always, Panel Beta brings up a crucial point. Uh, we're in the new segment, so we're going to wrap it at that point. <laughs> You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. Rainbow, you've been thinking about the um, national survey. Tell me what this is about. Uh, Private Lives 3, this is uh, number three, the third um, of a health and wellbeing um, survey of the LGBTIQ community. Um, The first one was back in uh, 2005, the the results came out in 2006, and it was the largest survey anywhere in the world of... um, queer community. Um, The second one was 2011 and that there were 4,000 people participated in this survey. Um, And now the third one, Private Lives 3, is online at the moment. This has been done through social media, so through Facebook, Twitter, uh, I presume Instagram, I'm not sure, but um, that's how it's been done and circulated in that way, which is why the numbers are so so large. So, picking up panel beaters' question from before, um, is this a, a just a self-selected group, or is there any a, a attempt to kind of randomise and get a proper sample? It's it's a proper sample. It's anyone. Uh-huh. Right. And I think um, I was thinking about this morning. I think the tendency is that people think that they have something to say. We're looking at you know physical health, mental health homelessness, family violence, employment, um, you know, quite a a broad spectrum of questions. Takes about between 20 minutes, half an hour to complete. And, you know, it's really important that anyone who is part of the community looks it up and fills it out, whether they feel that they are, um, you know, needing service of some sort, um, some kind of health service, or or if life is going pretty merrily for them. Because, you know, we need to have that that, that comparison and find out, you know, what are the factors that that, uh, impact someone's well-being within the community. So, you know, I, I filled it out the other day and um, I, I haven't filled it out before. I was really impressed by the care that has been given to uh, offer people, you know, numbers to call, to look after people's well-being as they fill this out because um, it's really confronting to actually put on paper or to mm. put on your computer screen a yes extremely uh, or no not at all kind of answer um and who's actually auspicing this it's um it's be it's come out of la trobe university it's the australian research center on sex sexual health and society they have done all of them it's funded with some of la trobe's money um with um government money and, you know we're really lucky in victoria that the state government is putting 
a lot of money into services for LGBTIQ community. Um, but, of course, we want to know that it's going to the right places. And still, you know, uh, anecdotally, there are... Uh, three I'd say mental health services specifically for the community there's queer space up at Drummond Street there's Thorn Harbour Health St Kilda Road and Mind Equality which is um, part of the Mind um, organisation and all those all those services are I think there's between two and six month wait list for service yeah so you know and people um uh, in private practice that are offering that service are booked up. It is really hard to get mental health services. Um, so the more information we have about the demand, hopefully the more more resources there will be available. And there's always a question as to whether we put money into, uh, you know, specialist service or whether we put money into broadening mainstream services so that you know you can walk into any service and it's inclusive i mean that that's an ideal um you know there are moves um to to broaden at the moment to to make mainstream services if you want specialists of all sorts services um and also to create more specialist services. Our community health is setting up um, specialist services. In, there's going to be one in Preston. There's going to be one in Ballarat, which is great mm. to see a new service, you know, um, out of out of Melbourne. Um, but we need this information. I'm not going to go into the the details of what we found in private life too, because um, most people understand that because of discrimination. Um, because of homelessness, because um, of all these negative factors that mental health and physical health as well is, um, is, is impacted negatively for queer community. And when I say physical health, you know, if you don't think that you're going to get inclusive treatment, if you don't think you're going to be seen by the medical service that you attend you're not likely to go which means early intervention is less likely to happen and and when was one and two how long ago uh, one was 2006, came out, th- yes. and 2011. So this is the third one. And do you have a sense from your experience and knowledge of this field what may have changed, what may have improved or maybe got worse? Do you know what's going to have happened? I suspect because there's increased awareness we will have more people in this survey, which will be a good thing. Um, I, I suspect that the results will be pretty much the same i may be completely wrong on that but i don't really see we have more service but we have more people wanting service because there's more awareness so i suspect that the results might look pretty much the same sorry i just yeah how how would we interpret that if they are the same i'm seeing possible that that's actually a good sign like there's not been a deterioration for example and if this is encompassing did you say 2006 so this is yeah. this is encompassing the period during the um uh, the gay marriage uh, well, the campaigns second, the second one was 2011 but oh, sorry. still right, yeah. yeah yep yeah um so it's encompassing a real big cultural and political moment where we were made well aware of the impact those campaigns had on the community. I mean, I think it's great that we're getting a new set of data because there is more awareness and hopefully there will be there will be more eyes and ears on the results of this.
Mm. So do we know what happens to the data? Does, does anyone actually take any notice or do they go into a big filing cabinet at La Trobe until the next five years? Well, <laughs> Private Lives 1 and 2 have been one of the main sources of information, if not the, you know, the, the main source of information for all research in, in um, LGBTIQ health and uh, physical mental health um, area. So it, it's important that it's up to date. Um, and the other thing you mentioned just earlier about mainstream as opposed to specialist service reminds me of when psychiatry in a more general sense was uh, sort of taken away from being separated off from other health and, and brought into big general hospitals as part of general health. What's your view in terms of LGBTIQ health and services that about whether there should be an independent specialist service or how much it should be integrated with the mainstream. I think there needs to be both. As I said, I think it would be... Yeah, there are a lot of people that do not want to walk into a um, queer-identified service, for instance. Um, And also, you know, we need services that cater to intersectionalities so that, um, you know... uh, people who are queer and have a disability or people of colour who are queer also receive inclusive practice. Misdiagnosis in in your medical student training, how much information, how much uh, coverage of this sort of topic do you get? To be honest, it's fairly minimal. A lot of the coverage comes from um, peer education. So um, a lot of the university groups uh, will have their own... Um, sort of subsections of LGBTIQ student networks and those student networks often put on information evenings. So uh, what I found is um, that we have a a lot to cover in the medical curriculum that is the accessible medical curriculum uh, that is then, you know, the Medical Board of Australia then sort of says this is the medical curriculum you must cover. And on top of that, there's everything else that's going on. And from my experience, um, when we do have content that is around lgbtiq communities it's often hiv in a man having sex with a man and that's it or it'll be hepatitis c in someone who's an intravenous drug user and it's it's relatively outdated curriculum material i do understand that this curriculum must be it goes through a sort of rigorous process before it can actually we're we're taught it but really it, it has been sort of peer education i think as the majority of this and you know the pitfall of that obviously is that it's then dependent on the year level to organize this kind of education for students i think in most universities there is a very passionate lgbtiq student network that um most of the time do a fantastic job of delivering some of this education but the fact is then the burden falls on that community again yeah and that's such an important point about the accessibility because uh, students do have an awful lot to cover and the idea of getting yourself really up to speed and informed of something which you know is not going to be part of your assessment not such a high incentive i remember way back when i was a student and the lecturer said now we're going to talk about some aspects of psychiatry and medical ethics here there will be no exam question on this and two-thirds of the lecture theatre got up and left. <laughs> the great thing about uh, what misdiagnosis is saying here is that hopefully in the not-too-distant future, those students will be the teachers. Yeah. And that is what's going to change it. It will be a generational shift. Uh, so, Rainbow, people listening to this who are interested, uh, where can they find a link to this? Go on your Facebook and search Private Lives 3. I'm not a Twitterer, but presumably you can do the same (laughs) and fill it out there. And I'd also like to, as we're talking about this, um, to give out the lifeline number here, 13. 
11 131114 is lifeline number and um, switchboard number, which is specifically for um, LGBTIQ community, is 1800 184 527. And do we know when the results of Private Lives 3 is going to be made public? I'm not sure. Okay, well, hopefully we can revisit that when the results are out and have a bit more of a think about what they've shown because that's going to be a fascinating survey. Thank you very much for bringing that to our attention. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Panel Peter, you sent me a, a link to an article that I could barely even understand the title, <laughs> let alone the content. <laughs> Tell me what it is you want to talk about. Yeah, I had this article bouncing around in my, um, in my, I don't know, my citation library, my bibliography library, and it um, is an article written by um, four GPs, and they were really interested to consider how um, doctors used um, their professional skills to interpret the presentation um, by uh, patients, clients, um, depending on how we feel about that, um, uh, and the way that they would self-describe their symptoms. And um, so what they were basically wanting to understand was, A, what, um, how, how doctors themselves understand a symptom, uh, what they define as a symptom, um, and then how um, patients c- uh, communicate what they think of a symptom. So they want to um, know ab- about a bunch of variables. So does the level of expertise of the patient influence the way that um, a GP will hear what... Um, and it might be just a perceived um, expertise. It might be just a literacy, so a, a patient turning up to a GP's consult with with the language to talk about their um, knee rather than just saying, I've got a sore knee or I've got this cough. You know, they might be able to describe their phlegm or they might be able to say, you know, how long they've had it and the relevance of that. They might be able to talk about family history or not. They may be able to even talk about um, their culture. Um, it'll be um, age-relevant, so... Um, Junior wakes up in the morning and says to parents, I don't want to go to school today. Why don't you want to go to school today? Well, I've got a sore tummy. And the parents are effectively dealing with a symptom moment. And is it the small tummy or is something going on at school that Junior doesn't want to face? And and then that gets replicated in the the GP's consult. So I'm really keen to run a few of these things by you guys because you're dealing with this at the coalface. And this is a very, very interesting topic you've picked out. Well done. And just as I clarify for listeners, we are talking here about symptoms presenting in primary care general practice particularly. And one of the reasons that's important is because the primary care environment is very much what we call a person-centred area of medicine. When people are in hospitals and if someone goes into an emergency department with crushing central chest pain and they can't breathe and they're feeling nauseous, we're not really too concerned about what the meaning is to the individual because they're having a heart attack and they need stuff doing to them, regardless whether they think it's indigestion or not. There are doctorly things that have to happen. That's much, much less common in primary care. So what you're saying, Panel Peter, is absolutely right. We need to think about what is the meaning, what's the language, what's the interpretation of the symptom for the patient so shall we um take a look at the way that these four gps um define it to begin with and let's bounce off that they 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 suggest that uh, a symptom is subjective 
it's not objective. Um, and I guess that allows for the, the possibility that there's cultural influences around it. They, um, and my... <laughs> Listeners can't tell that I'm not wearing my own glasses and I'm struggling to read off my notes at the moment. Um, a symptom refers to a change in bodily order and so that comes down to one person's understanding of their own body. Oh, so it doesn't mean that my hip bone is no longer connected to my knee bone. No, that's right. <laughs> um, the, the point there, it, we only have our, our own bodies as our reference point. Right, so we only know ourselves if something's changed. Um, so they're talking about a change in bodily order, um, whereas a, a, an expert or a GP is familiar with epidemiology. You know, they know population level um, understandings of symptoms, um, and a symptom reflects an uh, existence of something which was not there before. So it underpins the need that there has to be a change. Does that sit well for your own? practical application of uh, hearing somebody present with a symptom? Yes, it certainly does. And what it really reminds us, I think, is that a symptom for one person may be completely irrelevant to another person. So a, a minor episode of headache to someone who's been drinking a bit the night before may be of no consequence, but a minor episode of headache to someone whose father has just been diagnosed with a brain tumour might have a completely different meaning. Well, tell us about the um, the pain scale. So you turn up to a GP and you say, um, I've got a, a, a painful leg. And the GP says... Well, on a scale of 1 to 10, how much does it hurt? 10, it feels like you're about to die. Zero, it feels like a tickle. Uh, how does that fit into with, our, uh, with your approaches to interpreting symptoms? So I'm going to turf that one straight to misdiagnosis, who's probably taught to use pain scales in a way that I wasn't, curiously, because that's for over 40 years since I was a medical student. Um, but it, tell us what they teach you about using those sorts of pain scales. Well, I guess um, one of the first things they teach us is uh, the definition of pain is what the patient says hurts. There's a fancy longer definition um, from the World Health Organization that includes um, pain as a combination of emotional, um, noxious stimulus, chemical, and it, and it has a whole kind of list that um, you can sort of rattle off, which is the, the definition of pain, but it does include an emotional component to it as well. What that boils down to is pain is what the patient says hurts. And that's the crucial thing, isn't it? So what might be an 8 out of 10 pain to one person might be a 2 out of 10 to someone else. Absolutely. So we, what we're taught to do in medical school is, is use a pain scale of um, if zero is nothing and 10 is you need to be you know, you need to go straight to theatre and the have that foot amputated right now, or the worst pain you've ever experienced. So we use that, and then we use a combination of facial factors as well. So a lot of the pain scales now have a grimace rating as well. So if someone says, look, it's a 7 out of 10 pain, and then their phone goes off and they reach over and they go, sorry, I'm just going to reply to this tweet, you can kind of tell just through the facial expression, the body language. Now, this doesn't mean that this is not a 7 out of 10 pain for that individual. You believe what the patient says... But you then sort of correlate that with your own knowledge and your own understanding of, well, I've seen people who've just had abdominal surgery where when they, you know, do a tiny sneeze, they start crying because it hurts so much. And that's a 7 out of 10 pain to them. Yes. The, um, these um, GPs, they, they frame that very interaction between the patient and themselves in this way. They say the symptom, to the patient, the symptom has caused some kind of trouble, like distress, dysfunction or, or an uncertainty. Um, but to the doctor, the patient's symptom presentation is a source of knowledge for clinical judgment and 
and decision making to understand what is wrong and what can be done and always i would add to that it's about finding out why that symptom is important to this particular patient so we call it the patient agenda but i'll give you a pain example from a long time ago when was sitting in front of me telling me she had this terrible pain in the front of her leg and i couldn't get anything from the story i couldn't find anything wrong with her leg and as soon as i said to her said what bothers you about this pain what why are you so concerned about this pain and she looked at me in anguish and said it couldn't be cancer could it doctor and i said to her it's not cancer and she said oh thank you doctor kissed me on the cheek and left <laughs> because that was her that only was concern. All mattered, yeah. Yeah. And, so, and that's that's an example, I think, of the uh, kind of meaning of symptoms to individuals. Rainbow, they take it into um, the um, uh, the non-physical uh, realm by making a comment that it can also be applied to mental phenomena. They they say that um, in regards to things like agitation and dysphoria, um, the patient's own understanding of what is supposed to be normal for them, or what they understand the rest of society considers normal for them starts to play in this symptom identification. Yeah, and um, misdiagnosis used the word distress when you were talking about pain, included the word distress, which I was really happy to hear because, you know, from a psychological perspective, we talk more about distress and subjective units of distress from a zero to ten to to give a sort of self-assessment. But there's also the much broader use of the word symptom I think um, that maybe includes impact so um, panel beat it you you referred to someone who's not wanting to go to school I would include that as a symptom rather than an impact I would say that is a symptom Mm -hmm. school refusal for instance Um, so uh, much much broader and around the idea of not depression not anxiety not uh, dysphoria, whatever the the, the broader um, or, or the more specific symptom is, and just talk about distress, I think is much more useful. Yeah, yeah. They, they go on in another part to talk about how um, symptom management is determined by that um, meaning attributed to the symptom, which you both have just been mentioning. They, they draw some interesting uh, case studies, one um, that is cultural and one is contextual. And the contextual one is um, somebody who uh, is expressing dizziness but they've just come off a merry-go-round or a or a, a fair ride or something like that, and so the dizziness is explained by that. Where the actual same um, physical phenomena would apply to a fisherman who's on troubled seas and bouncing around um, and is experiencing, uh, you know, their their uh, an impact on their balance sense of balance, um, but is not treating it as a symptom because the explanation is a professional practice. They talk, and so there's a contextual one. And the cultural one um, I found really interesting was uh, we associate um, uh, hot flushes and temperature changes as as potentially a symptom of menopause. In Japan, um, it's not, but a sore shoulder is. And um, so a, a patient... That's really interesting. It's really interesting, isn't it? Um, I checked the citation, it's there, and um, from my time in Japan, it wouldn't surprise me if that's the case. Um, the um, um, And so, therefore, the cultural relevance, and this just keeps returning us to this idea of subjectivity in symptom, which is a real challenge, I imagine, for the practitioner. 
and that is just a lovely example, Panelita. I'm sitting here, my jaw has just dropped at the idea that I now have to ask people who may be in the middle life about whether they've got sore shoulders as a symptom of their menopause. <laughs> that is certainly new to me. Uh, we could talk about this for a lot longer, but unfortunately time has got... But I will hold on to that gem of a thought and <laughs> I will be talking to patients of all races and nationalities now about their shoulders. Uh, we'll be coming back right after you are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, we're going to move from menopause and sore shoulders to thinking about uh, doctors as groups uh, and advocacy and organisations. Misdiagnosis, where's this been taking you? Well, this came to my attention when I saw an article published in The New Yorker a couple of days ago in August. And the title of the article is uh, was Why Doctors Should Organise. And the thing that kind of grabbed me about this is I was reading the start of the article and um, it's essentially in a US context and that um, a group, the American College of Physicians, sort of uh, in light of some of the mass shootings that had occurred in the US, um, had stood up against um, the availability of assault weapons. Not something we have a lot of here in Australia, but and they'd sort of said, look, we, we have too many assault weapons going out and we're, um, it, this is a big public health um, risk. And I was very interested that the National Rifle Association in America responded with, someone should tell the self-important anti-gun doctors to stay in their lane. And right. this got me thinking. <laughs> and, and, what, and what were the self-important righteous anti-gun doctors' response to being told to stay in their lane? Well, so this, this is what got me thinking about this. What is the role of a doctor as an advocate? Because the response, um, the American College of Physicians' response to this was to start up a hashtag called This Is My Lane. Um, <laughs> and the This Is My Lane hashtag um, ended up showing sort of photos of emergency room physicians, trauma surgeons, paediatricians, pathologists... Um, all of whom were taking care of people with multiple gunshot wounds, um, including a pathologist who tweeted, do you have any idea how many bullets I pull out of corpses weekly? This isn't my lane, this is my effing highway. Um, And essentially this response was... um, I was interested in this response because you have one one side, the, um, the National Rifle Association, saying this is a political issue and, um, you know, the self-important doctors, you have no point, no part in our, in sort of weighing in on our issues. And then you have the other side of this, which is the public health side saying, well, actually, you know, the doctors are seeing this every day in the emergency rooms and pulling bullets out of people. And at, and at one level, immediately you talk about gun licensing and that sort of thing. Well, what on earth does that have to do with doctors? And then as soon as you hear the response, you think, well, it has everything to do with doctors and medicine. Absolutely. And I think that's because in, in some ways, um, you know, medicine is, is about human rights and public health. And so when issues like this happen that, that do influence the health of the public, uh, you know, they, what, what is, and essentially the question that I, I was sort of asking with this is, what is the role of a doctor in, in advocacy and in political advocacy? Um, and and it's, a, it's a tricky one because um, in some ways, you know, I think people like to think of, of doctors as being um, sort of bipartisan and neutral, that we're there just to take care of the health of people. Um, but when you actually look to the Medical Board of Australia and their code of conduct for good practice, and I went and, and read the code of conduct and for anyone interested, it was section five, which was um, <laughs> working in the healthcare system. They, they have a little subsection in that section five that says that good medical practice involves using your expertise and influence to protect and advance the health and well-being of individual patients, communities and populations. Which essentially, the way I read this, is saying that, yeah, you should be an advocate. 
Yes. So the crucial word there was populations. Absolutely. And yet when doctors do um, come together and protest about this, often there is a lot of backlash about, you know, what are you doing advocating for this particular political issue? Your responsibility and your duty is to your patients in your hospitals at that time. So some people might say that this is a job for the the formal organisations, people like the AMA or the RACGP, that it should be the the formal organisational structure that's doing the advocating. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And yet often those formal structures... You know, there has to be a push from somewhere. And with, within those formal structures, you have people working um, with policy and with advocacy, but you don't have those people where this is their highway in the emergency room looking at this stuff every day and then saying something needs to change. Well, those people often, they don't have the time to be advocates. Yeah. Isn't, isn't that a, a big factor in this? That the people that do have the time aren't, if you want, on the shop floor yeah, absolutely. And again, this is this is one of the sort of conundrums of, you know, wanting to do it all in a way as well, that you want to be able to be there for your patients and advocate for the people, you know, in your waiting room and in your consultation room. And yet at the same time, you want to reduce the burden on those out in the community for any specific issues. So, so I went on to have a look at um, the different doctor, uh, doctor sort of advocacy groups that existed in Australia, um, just to trying to see where the doctors are not staying in their lane, but kind of opening them up anyway. And it's interesting because there are actually a sort of a number of organisations that doctors have rallied behind and created, including Doctors for Refugees, Doctors for the Environment, and one of the newest ones, Doctors for Justice as well. So this is an area where I think medical professionals are becoming more, in inverted commas, sort of activated. And of course, this is uh, um, the campaign against nuclear armament, um, which was begun, uh, one of the groups doing that, which won the Nobel Prize, uh, began here in Melbourne with doctors like Tillman Ruff and Margaret Beavis um, advocating, while being full-time medical practitioners, very strongly about the role of nuclear weapons and the reason this was a health issue that doctors had to be involved. Uh, it, I think, Rainbow, your point's so important. I mean, I hear all these things and I think, oh my goodness, this is terribly important, but how many things can you be an activist in? Uh, my recent involvement in the voluntary assisted dying um, was one area where I decided to get involved, partly because our representative organisations, in this case the AMA, was anti. So I wasn't going to rely on the on the representative organisation to do anything because their view was, in my view, wrong. And often it comes out of you know a, a, a feeling of anger that something needs to be done. There's no kind of real thought process put into it you just have to do it you feel a moral obligation to be out there advocating and of course there are potential risks to careers through this aren't there because there are this is sometimes advocating of something which of course in a political sense might be unpalatable it might be gun control over in america it might be something to do with asylum seekers health here in australia did your research come up against uh, how doctors are managing with that balance between advocacy and still having a job it wasn't something that i specifically read up on but i you know i know from experience within um, the medical student field about um, advocacy in this particular field which of course is kind of baby steps into the pond of kind of greater medical advocacy in a career as a doctor that a lot of my peers who are interested um, in various issues around global health um, they, they spend a lot of time working for this and there is a lot of burnout. And the, the other side of it is then that 
your performance as a student, as a medical student, um, can also be affected as well, that you don't have as much time to study for exams because, for instance, one of my close friends organised one of the Sydney rallies last year, um, which was medical students against um, detention, and she managed to get a 1,000 people turning up to this rally and an open letter that was signed and these letters that went to Manus and this kind of thing. We got to exam time and she just said, my God, I'm exhausted, and now I'm supposed to pass these exams as well, which, of course, is important too. Yeah. Panel Beach, I'm sure you've got a view on this. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a few things that are racing through my mind. Um, one of them is um, just the tried and true um, practice in public policy formulation about asking what's the problem represented to be. And from the NRA and the gun advocate point of view, their conversation, the conversation they want to have is about um, libertarianism and the... And the <coughs> And the right of the individual um, to go about their lives however they they may like, and uh, in this case, carry a gun. Um, Whereas the medical profession, the conversation they want to have is a public health issue. So I've been trying to think of um, analogous um, public policy areas where these two have met before. Human rights, individual, not human rights, individual rights, because there's a distinction there, individual rights and public health. And maybe, just maybe, it's uh, seatbelts. So um, there was an argument at the time that seatbelts were introduced that if I don't want to wear a seatbelt, I shouldn't wear a seatbelt, or even, uh, for that matter, um, uh, helmets uh, on bikes and motorcycles. Um, And the conversation eventually was able to coalesce and public policy was shifted um, in that regard. But at the moment, the... having a, a health um, conversation with somebody who wants to talk about a um, individual's rights conversation, it's just not going to... It's just not going to... Um, it, you're talking past each other. So did you come across... Uh, tell us what the major groups are, uh, covering this sort of area in Australia are at the moment. So that those were the Doctors for Refugees, Doctors for the Environment, okay. Doctors for Justice. I think the other thing that's important... And doctors for Justice? Sorry, what's... Uh, justice for whom? Uh, so this is, that was a legal-based organisation um, and that was looking at... Oh, God, you're stretching my memory back to more than sort of seven hours ago. Um, (laughs) That's most unfair. um, The Doctors for Justice, I think that was designed around... It was almost in conjunction with the Doctors for Refugees around some of the human rights issues. And the, the, the issue with this in Australia is that we don't actually have a federal charter of human rights in Australia. We're signatories to a lot of international treaties, but we don't have our own charter of human rights that is a federal charter that we can fall back on and say, hey, we have decided that health is a human right for everybody, therefore we need to follow these you know, these particular protocols or steps. And I think that's um, something that, you know, we're not actually taught in school that we don't have our own um, human rights charter in Australia, which then makes it difficult to advocate from a position of power because you don't have something to fall back on and say, as a, as a nation, this is what we've decided is important. Which probably makes it all the more important that people and groups are prepared to stand up and say what matters. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sorry, Rainbow. Yeah, I'm just wondering whether you know that the doctors for for justice involve themselves in you know advocating for access to certain types of medical care under Medicare, uh, thinking particularly of access to surgery for um, uh, trans and gender diverse people that are not covered by Medicare and are completely out of the reach of many individuals that that desperately need them um, to affirm their identity uh, and cost a lot of money. 
Mm, not something that I looked into specifically, but um, you know, certainly one of the big areas that you know there, there are a lot of a lot of health things that that they do cost a lot of money, and Medicare lags behind often with this kind of thing because it it does play catch up in terms of looking at the cost benefit of analysis before that there's any kind of PBS funding for things. And with everything in the news at the moment about the demise or potential demise of private health insurance, and so the, the uh, a, a potential revolution occurring there in access to this kind of procedure. Health. Uh, the thing that I thought I would just leave it with is whilst I was doing this research and looking at these, you know, all these kind of committed individuals who were standing up for this, um, I came across this quote from Margaret Mead, which was, never doubt that a group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world because it's the only thing we have. Ah, a very, very nice way to wrap that one. Thank you, Miss Diagnosis. It's 10.59 almost uh, on this uh, somewhat inclement Sunday morning. Um, it's nearly time to wrap up and it's just time to say thank you to our wonderful panellists. So, Rainbow Doc, thank you very much for being thank here you, this Dr. morning. Nick. Misdiagnosis. Thank you. And panel Peter, thanks as always for your contributions, comments and keeping this whole show on the road. Great to be with you all. Um, for those that are listening who are subscribers, thank you for subscribing and please, please keep going. For those who've just tuned in and are wondering what this radio program is all about, 3RRR, um, rrr.org.au is our website uh, our Radiothon Subscribathon is coming up over the next few days uh, and this is your chance to if you're a new subscriber to jump in and uh, get the possibility of all sorts of wonderful prizes uh, for those who are current subscribers please 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 stay in touch and resubscribe. Uh, I've been Dr Nick thank you for listening remember you can check us out on Facebook and you can listen anytime with Triple R Radio On Demand. You can always download the podcast so you can listen to us again and again. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page.